Disrupting Japan, Episode 31. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Once again, I've got a special show for you today. There will be no guests, no wine, no playful banter with someone speaking English as a second language. Today, it's just you and me. And for the next 20 minutes, I'll be whispering in your ear about a topic that, well, is a lot more personal than most of the things we cover on Disrupting Japan. There'll probably be more than a few things with which you probably don't agree, and hey, that's what these special shows are for. And I suppose that's also what our comments section are for. So I look forward to talking to you there. You know, when I started planning out this podcast, I had a good and a simple idea. And like most of my good and simple ideas, they never work out the way I plan. They always work out, of course. They just never work out the way I plan. This episode is no different. I intended this to be a simple question-and-answer show, a show where I take the time to answer some of the most common and most confusing questions I get asked about the show. Some of them lighthearted, some of them serious, and most of them pretty interesting. But as I started drafting the show notes, my answer to one particular question began getting longer and longer, and it started to become more and more significant until it became clear that the answer to this particular question would not only consume the entire show, but also explain one of the reasons I'm so optimistic about the future of Japan. The question itself seems trivial. It's the sort of thing that might get thrown around in conversation when you don't feel like talking about the weather. The odd thing is, however, that any foreigners living in Japan find the question, however innocently asked, to be rather irritating. A few even get offended at being asked. When I tried to put together a complete answer to the question, like so many other seemingly simple issues we deal with on Disrupting Japan, once I began pulling on that thread, more and more cloth kept unraveling until something that started out quite mundane turned into something, at least for me, rather profound. Actually, a lot of Japan stories work out that way. They start out simple and wind up in a very different and hopefully better place. Hopefully, we'll have a lot of fun during this trip. The question is, why do you stay in Japan? Now, now most of the foreign residents in Japan listening to this winced right now. But to my overseas listeners, and probably my Japanese listeners as well, I really need to explain why so many foreigners find that question so annoying. And then I can get on with answering it. Now, I will always be an outsider in Japan. Don't get me wrong. I've started businesses. I have a lot of close friends and a large circle of personal and professional friends who I enjoy spending time with and who enjoy spending time with me. But social networks run very deep in Japan. Your school, your extended family, your first company. Someone moving to Japan as an adult will simply not have these connections. They won't really ever completely fit into the system. You'll have friends, lovers, colleagues. Life goes on normally. But every once in a while, you'll find yourself on the outside because you simply don't fit into the existing circles. For many Westerners, 
These occasional reminders that they don't really fit in are, well, painful, and understandably so. And these individuals, when they're asked, why do you stay in Japan? Even when that question is asked innocently, as it almost always is, they tend to hear a reminder that they don't fit in and that they're expected to leave Japan one day. Now, in my opinion, not really fitting in as a definite upside. You're free from the obligations that being part of all those social circles involves, and those obligations can be substantial. Not really fitting into one specific social circle allows you to move between them much more easily than Japanese can, and gives me great latitude to be, well, shall we say, eccentric. Most Japanese expect us foreigners to behave slightly differently, and they're often quite disappointed and a bit suspicious when we do not. In fact, over the years, I've noticed that the Westerners who try the hardest to fit in, the ones that really feel the need to be accepted, are the ones that have the hardest time in Japan. Now, I don't mean simple common-sense things like learning the language and understanding and following basic business and social etiquette. You can't really function in Japan without that. No, I mean the foreigners who claim that sitting in seiza is more comfortable than sitting in a chair, who insist on only eating Japanese food, and lament that young Japanese today simply can't speak formal Japanese correctly. Which is actually true, and it's a very common complaint among Japanese businessmen in their 60s, but it seems odd coming from Westerners in their 20s. No, the whole nation of Japan is like a small town that way. Your parents might move there when you're five years old. You can live your whole life there, make friends, have a family, become a valued and respected member of the community. But even in your 60s or 70s, you'll occasionally hear people remark, he's a great guy, but he's not really from here. I hope it's obvious that none of this is criticism. Unless you've grown up in Japan, it's just the way things are. And I think that's fine. Now, back to why I stay in Japan. The short answer is that until very recently, my decision to live in Japan had never been about Japan itself. Every time I considered moving back to the U.S., some new project would arise or some new business opportunity would present itself, and I'd get excited about it and stay. Truth be told, I've always had a bit of a love-hate relationship with Japan. And in fact, I've left Japan for good twice. But I always end up coming back to Tokyo. In fact, earlier this year, I had a great offer in San Francisco, but I decided to stay. This time, because of what I see in the country. For reasons we've talked about many times on this show, I think the next five years in Japan are going to be far more interesting than the next five years in San Francisco. But it's not just the changing attitudes towards risks and startups. It's not simply the huge uptick in startups and funding. It's not simply that we finally have successful Japanese entrepreneurs investing in and mentoring the next generation of startup founders. Those are all important trends that make me hugely optimistic about the future of Japan. The disruption is coming. But a few years ago, I saw something that convinced me of something equally important, that Japan will be able to harness this disruption and turn it into something good for society as a whole. Those who study history know that economic disruption is not always a good thing. On March 11, 2011, 
we saw another kind of disruption when a massive 9.0 earthquake and several large aftershocks slammed into Japan. What I saw in Tokyo that afternoon demonstrated the absolute best aspects of both Japanese society and the Japanese themselves. I was working at Zurich Financial at the time. I was walking down a long, narrow hallway and was in mid-stride when the first quake hit. It tilted me off one leg and into the right wall and onto the left and onto the floor as I tried to regain my balance. The entire hallway was moving side to side and actually twisting a bit. I walked, bounced down the length of it like some kind of third-rate carnival ride to get to the main room, out the fire exit, and down the stairs. Now, like everyone living in Japan, I've been in a lot of earthquakes, and even a few pretty big ones. They're not exactly pleasant, but they're not usually particularly scary either. So, we all milled about outside the building, talking, smoking cigarettes, and waiting for the announcement that it was clear to go back in the office and get back to work. A few of my Japanese co-workers were wearing white hard hats. We'd been issued these hats and some other safety equipment when we joined the firm. I considered it a curiosity at the time and had completely forgotten about it until this moment. Zurich would undoubtedly run a series of disaster preparedness inspections once this danger had passed and things returned to normal. We'd just been cleared to go back in when the aftershocks began to hit. You know, it's funny. You really don't know how big an earthquake is when you're in the middle of it. But as we watched the big plate glass display windows on the ground floor begin to twist back and forth, the decision was made to move us to the formal evacuation area. A handful of people in our group knew where it was, and the rest of us, perhaps 150 people, followed them. The company clearly had a formal emergency plan in place, but none of us really knew exactly what it was, and that was fine. An informal network of chatter and a bit of gossip soon confirmed that everyone was out of the building and accounted for. A few of the foreign managers had worked themselves into a near panic trying to take charge of the situation, but overall everyone was surprisingly calm. Not a relaxed calm. It was more of a resigned calm. This was a situation and we had to make the best of it. The weather was clear and warm, so things could have been a lot worse. Months before, I'd teased one of my co-workers for buying this huge piece of equipment that allowed her to receive network TV stations on her phone. Turns out, she made the right call. With the phone and the mobile networks overloaded and useless, this silly-looking device was our only source of information as we waited in the evacuation area. We began to understand how bad things really were, but we wouldn't really know the full extent of the damage for several days. The damage up north was horrible. Here in Tokyo, people were shaken up. You could see a fair amount of property damage, but for the most part, the buildings were all still standing, and the roads were clear. At last, Zurich decided to send everyone home. It was a sensible decision, of course, but it was really the start of another problem. You see... Not only were the phone and mobile networks shut down, but so was all public transportation. No trains, no buses. The taxi drivers had already headed home to be with their own families hours ago. If you had a private car, you were in for a once-in-a-lifetime traffic jam, but you'd get home okay. But really, not many people in Tokyo drive to work. Now, my colleagues and I, and eight million other people, set out for home on foot. 
That wasn't that big a deal for me, actually. I lived about 11 kilometers, about six miles, from the office, and more than a decade of riding a motorcycle in Tokyo had taught me the surface streets. I know where I'm going, and I'll be back and able to check on my wife, Ami. God, I hope she's home, or at least was able to get back, in a few hours. Almost everyone else, unfortunately, had much further to go. Two-hour train commutes into Tokyo are fairly common, so a large number of people would uh, not be arriving home until early the next morning. My colleagues and I slowly scattered, each of us heading in whatever direction we figured would take us home. The sidewalks were packed and became more and more crowded the closer you got to the major streets and large intersections. A few people whipped by me on new bicycles. Clever bastards. When public transportation shut down, the quick-witted ran to the store and bought a bicycle. They'll be getting home quickly, but the stores have long since sold out. Oh well, I'll get home soon enough. I just wish I could contact Ami and make sure everything's okay. Phone and network's down. Can't call, can't text, but I keep trying. Yeah, I know that's just making it worse. I don't care. Nishizabu Crossing is one of the largest intersections in this part of Tokyo, and it's about halfway home. As I approached it, I noticed something astounding. Or rather, it finally dawned on me how astounding what I was seeing all along actually was. The sidewalks were really packed at this point, a mass of humanity all trying to make our way home. You could see the stress on everyone's face. No one really knew what was going on or if their loved ones were safe. But despite all of this, there was no yelling, no pushing. People waited impatiently at crosswalks for the signals to change, but they waited. People were queuing up in grocery stores and convenience stores to buy food, water, toilet paper, well, everything, really. But there's no shoving, no real signs of anger or hostility. Everyone waits their turn, pays for their goods, and continues on their way home. After one of the worst disasters in decades, eight million people were calmly walking out of Tokyo and going home. I crossed the intersection and continued. My phone vibrates. A text from Ami. Looks like a few packets got through. She's fine. Everyone's fine. A couple of bookcases knocked over, some broken glass, that sort of thing. A small tiki I'd bought in Hawaii has been utterly destroyed. Hmm. Ami always hated that tiki. I'm less than 30 minutes from home and about to cross Tengenji. Someone's trying to figure out how to get to Rapongi Dori, so I stop and explain. You just go down this road to, I think it's the third signal. It's a huge street with an expressway above it. You can't miss it. People began to queue. Shinagawa? Well, that's pretty far. But the simplest way is probably to keep walking down this road and then follow the street signs. You'll see them at the next big intersection. It's not the most direct way, but you won't get lost. See, Mom? Riding a motorcycle in Tokyo all these years turned out to be a good thing after all. I stayed there giving directions for about 20 minutes until people stopped asking. Everyone was anxious and stressed, but unfailingly polite. No one at the time, including me, seemed to think it was odd that a blue-eyed Westerner was the one giving directions. Strange thing was that almost everyone seemed to be headed in the right direction already. I arrived home, and everyone was fine. Shaken up, but fine. In fact, it turned out that almost everything in Tokyo was going to be fine. The real damage, where things were decidedly not fine, was up north. 
It took me a day or two for what I saw in Tokyo to really sink in. After one of the worst disasters in decades, with transportation out, communications offline, and the entire city shutting down, there was no yelling, no fighting, no stealing, no pushing. Eight million people calmly walked out of Tokyo and went home. It would not have gone down like that anywhere else on the planet. It's not simply that the social order did not break down. I mean, there was no one giving instructions and no one was looking for orders to follow. The police were active, of course, but they were focused on helping people who were stranded in the trains and elevators that lost power when the quake hit, uh, directing traffic and pointing lost pedestrians in the right direction. It was an amazing display, and perhaps a unique one, of the collective understanding that we're all in this terrible situation together, and we'd all better just make it work. I realized that Japan would not only get through this earthquake, but that somehow, despite Japan's current economic problems, and there are a lot of them, that Japan would make it work. Japan will be okay. Now, there's no doubt that there are a lot of things that need to change before Japan can once again become a global leader in growth and innovation. But those who say that Japan is too risk-averse and too hostile towards startups simply don't see the changes that are already taking place here. But as much as we love to talk about disruptive technology, disruption alone is not enough to remake an economy. Disruption tears down the old and replaces it with something smaller and more efficient. But society as a whole needs to coalesce around the new. The transformation required is something that will radically disrupt the way business is done and the way technologies are adopted, but maintains a social cohesion that does not forget that society is made up of individuals and that most of those individuals need to benefit from the economic disruption. Now, this seems like a pointless and contradictory set of goals to those immersed in Silicon Valley or Wall Street culture. But this is how things will likely play out in Japan, and we're already seeing the beginnings. Japan will do very well in the next few decades, and as I've mentioned before, the next five years in Japan are going to be far more interesting than the next five years in San Francisco, or probably anywhere else. And that's why I stay in Japan. It's exciting and the startup and investment opportunities are huge here. Japan's a very comfortable place to live. It's easy to make friends. And sure, I'll always be a bit of an outsider here, and that's fine with me. Those deep social networks that so many foreigners find so frustrating, and which sometimes slow down the adoption of new technologies, are exactly what will enable Japan to survive, and also to thrive in the coming period of disrupting Japan. Now, if you were in Japan during the earthquake, or if you want to take me for tasks for some of the very many things I left out, please drop by the site and tell your story at disruptingjapan.com show031. We'd love to hear from you. And if you get a chance, please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can support the show and really help us get the word out. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.